0: Listening to Tell you a podcast on being complete in Christ, hosted by Buzzsprout. What are the chances of fulfilling a single prophecy? What about eight or twenty? How about over three hundred? The story of Christmas and the story of the life of Christ is one which stretches beyond credulity only in that the odds are against it. Unless, unless Jesus was God, and if Jesus was God, What does that mean to you? Today we will explore the answer to this question and look at some of the prophecies surrounding the life of the Son of God. Please stay with us in this special extended episode of Tellia's Talk. And now, here are your hosts, Wendell and Ali.
1: Well, here we are. We're at the end of another year. And it certainly has been a year. Um, not one that most of us will likely forget. It's been a bit of a tough year for everybody.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think this is one of those years that will go down in history, you know, our maybe not our kids, but our kids' kids will read about it, you know, that year that didn't exist or the year of that yeah. 2020. Uh, I don't think it's I don't think it's been easy for anybody in the world, which is why our last podcast of the year i think should end on a happy note Mm -hmm. in last month's episode we asked the question who is jesus and i commented on two passages in the new testament that are considered boring by very many that would be matthew 1 verses 1 through 17 and luke 3 verses 23 through 38 they are the genealogies of jesus through his earthly parents
1: joseph and mary so when you say when you say boring are you like talking the book of numbers length of boring or not as bad well i think a lot of people
2: when they start reading genealogies especially in the bible they just zone out i know that's you know book of numbers is bad for that and Mm -hmm. uh these genealogies again you're reading names that are hard to pronounce
1: so it's, it would have been important. It would have been important. I don't know if I'm going to jump in here on your on your thing, but it would have been important for the Jews because the yeah. Jewish people have a very big thing about well, their 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 past, right? Their genealogy. Thing. for Jewish people, that was how they found their lineage. That's how they found their place within the children of of Israel. Yeah. So I I, I know what you mean. It, it comes across as boring, but. Then again, when, when I know that when you read the genealogies, there's a few things in there that you kind of read. I'm not going to say any more than that, but there's a few names that you read that you kind of go, hold on a second. Yeah. Uh. You know, the genealogies, they establish Jesus as
2: both a descendant of King David, which gives him a rightful claim to the throne of Israel and mm-hmm. to the heavenly kingdom, as we hear in Isaiah's prophecy. And he's also the high priest, which puts him over Israel and the church as well. So the easy one to establish here is Jesus' right to the title of king. This is because both arms of the genealogy through both Joseph and Mary are traced right directly through the line of David. It wasn't a secret. We read in John 7, verse 42, that the people knew from Scripture that Christ the Messiah would come from the line of David. You know, when Herod was wanting to kill all the babies, Everybody knew. They're like, oh, you know what? He's going to be from Bethlehem. This would have been taught through what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17. Here's the thing, though. There's a twist because there's a curse on the line of Joseph in Jeremiah 22 where the king, Jaconiah was told that none of his descendants would ever sit on the throne of Israel. So that ended in the line of Joseph, which is why Mary's line is important because she still is a descendant of David, right? Wow. So, even though they're both descendants, Joseph's is cut off, but Mary's continued, which is it is important to have both genealogies there. So, so, that's his claim to the king, kingship. Uh, his mm-hmm. claim as a high priest, um, he didn't have a fleshly father. Okay. So, Mary was his mother, Joseph was not his father. He would be like an adoptive adopted father yeah you know, who took him on as a father figure this means that he fulfilled the duty of the firstborn as a priest were moved by god because of the sins of Israelites. if you remember in the old testament the firstborn of each family was always sort of the priest yeah and when they escaped from egypt and they were in the wilderness they sinned and god got angry and he said i'm taking away the priesthood i'm going to give it to the levites that firstborn priesthood was yeah. removed by God. And so now here, because Jesus was born sinless and because he didn't have an earthly father, that firstborn priesthood was reestablished, which is really important. Every time Jesus forgave someone of their sins, he demonstrated his office as the high priest. We, we pick on the Pharisees and Sadducees, but you know, clearly <laughs> they saw things that we don't see in scripture. One of yeah. them was Jesus forgiving people's sins which was the job that only the high priest could have, it would have incensed them. We see that prophesied in the Old Testament in Zechariah Mm 6.13, where the prophecy was that Jesus would come, forgive people their sins, basically bestowing on the Messiah the role of the high priest. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, Jesus being a prophet, he was a prophet without equal. Uh, In Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 19, we talk about their expectation that there would be one who was greater than Moses. Yeah, I remember that. In John 4, verse 44, Jesus actually calls himself a prophet. And then in John 6, 14, the people of Israel called Jesus a prophet. Mm -hmm. You know, so there was an understanding of Jesus' role as a prophet at the time. And you Mm -hmm. remember what Peter said, right? He said, you are the Christ, the anointed one. This is important because David, who was king, was called the anointed one in first 1 Samuel 1613. Mm-hmm. Aaron the priest was called the anointed one in Leviticus 8:12. And Elisha the prophet was called the, the anointed one, as well as Isaiah the prophet was called the anointed one. So Christ being referred to as the anointed one will have bound all three of these ideas as him being a king and a high priest and a prophet together. Prophet. You know <laughs> that's why he's called the anointed. And just for good measure Matthew and Luke also claim Jews to be God, the Messiah, and he is the fulfillment of
1: the covenant with Abraham. So in actual fact, it's definitely not as boring as the book of Numbers. There's actually quite a lot you could get your there's a lot you could get your teeth
2: into there. Yeah, there's and that's really quick and dirty. Like we could spend an hour or more talking about specific Bible verses and, and how they relate and
1: why they're important. But that's the magnificence of God's word. So the references that you made um, to the Old Testament scriptures, um, and specifically some of the scriptures that you would define as being prophecies, is something that I was hoping we could touch on briefly sure. prior, prior to the, the end of this year, seeing as how uh, December is, is the focus of Christ's birth. I wanted to look at some of the prophecies uh, about the Messiah's coming. Uh, Because it is one of the major themes and focuses of the Jewish religion, as well as one of the central themes of the the Christian faith. Yeah, and you know, I think too, just to interject here,
2: yes, this is a Christmas episode, as you will, Hmm. coming out a week after Christmas. But more importantly, we're talking about who is Jesus. Yeah, And yes, Jesus came as a baby, as a man, but... All these prophecies about Jesus that we're going to talk about have to do with his whole life, why he came, why he did what he did, why what happened
1: to him was important. Yeah. And there's pretty much a prophecy for almost every single stage of his life. So the Old Testament contains over
2: 300 prophecies about a future Messiah, a savior anointed by God to deliver his people from oppression. The New Testament Trumpets the fulfillment of those prophecies through the life, the death, and resurrection of the man called Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. In John 4, verse 25 to 26, Jesus himself referred to
1: who he was as the promised Messiah. Mm -hmm. You know, in mathematically speaking, the odds of anyone fulfilling that amount of prophecies would be staggering. Like mathematically, if you put it this way, so one person fulfilling eight prophecies is one in one quatillion or a one followed by 17 zeros. So it's a lot. You have a better chance of winning the lottery, don't you? You do. You have a better chance of winning the lottery. Um, And one person fulfilling 48 prophecies is one chance in 10 to the 157th power. Again, you got more chance of winning the lottery, oh. and then one person fulfilling all three hundred prophecies is completely incomprehensible. That's like that's like somebody getting a PS five for Christmas this year. If not
2: <laughs> I heard it described this way: Imagine a huge sphere filled mm-hmm. with silver dollars, and that sphere stretches from the sun mm-hmm. two thousand seven hundred and ninety three billion miles. To the center of the planet neptune so it's a sphere the like 3d Yep. one of those silver dollars is marked and you ask a blind man to find that marked coin in one try <laughs> so we know in our hearts that the blind man will never find the marked coin but jesus hit it on the button only jesus can fulfill the incomprehensible or the improbable and many people have tried to explain the fulfillments of the prophecies of Jesus by something that he was able to do because he knew the prophecies to fulfill. But as we can see from the math, it's impossible. Even though if he were a man, just a man, and he knew all the prophecies, in order for him to not only understand those prophecies and then bring it to fulfillment, would mean yeah. he would have to have control over not only what he was doing, but over what the people around him were doing, what the government was doing what time was doing
1: things that were completely outside of a man's ability yeah yeah and like you said you know it's impossible for a human but it's not impossible for the son of god that's right you know it says in matthew 5
2: verse 17 that jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets
1: but he Mm -hmm. came to fulfill them yeah that's what we see and that's the other thing that we're going to see when we look at these prophecies is that you know, even if Jesus did know all the prophecies, there's a, there's there's definitely a few that you cannot, he could not possibly have um, fulfilled yeah. by his own intent and purposes. So let's look at the first one. So uh, the first one, a prophecy that we're going to look at, is found in the book of Micah, which was written about 400 years before the birth of Christ. And it goes like this, Micah says in chapter 5, but you, O Bethlehem, Epharah, which I can never pronounce these Jewish names, are only a small village in Judah, and yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. So here we have a God through a prophet saying that the Messiah would be born in the town of Bethlehem. Now, if we jump to the the gospel uh, accounts of Christ's birth, I just want to look at Luke chapter 2, which is um, also... Reflected in Matthew chapter 2, but Luke chapter 2 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while uh, Quirinius was governor of Syria. So everyone went to be registered. Each went to his own town. Joseph, who was the adopted father of Jesus, also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the family line of David. So he went there to be registered along with Mary, who he was engaged to and who was pregnant with Jesus. And while they were there, time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room at the inn. I like using that instead of the guest room thing. (laughs) Um, That's a very famous passage that gets read every Christmas. And there is no way that Jesus could have, you know, influenced his influenced Caesar Augustine to influence his father to go and register in Bethlehem with his engaged wife. Joseph and Mary were not married. No, they were still engaged, and she was pregnant. So you also have this taboo in there too, you know. Um, so it's highly unlikely that Jesus could have could have. In any way influenced the fact that he was born in Bethlehem. By all accounts, he should have been born in Nazareth. And in fact, he as he is known as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene, even though he's actually Jesus the Bethlehemite. Yeah. You know. Yeah.
2: But that's because after they came back from Egypt, they moved into into Nazareth because
1: Joseph was afraid of Herod's son, who was now in charge. Mm -hmm. And Joseph was originally Joseph had come from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the registration. So he that's where his work was. That's where his family was. So like, again, the the chances of of Christ being born in Bethlehem when his father and if you look at the distance between Bethlehem and Nazareth, it's not like a simple journey. It's not like when you, you can grab a Greyhound bus or jump in your car and, you know, three hours later, you're there. This would have been a journey that would take them a few days. And not an easy one either, especially when you have a nine-month pregnant fiancé with you, you know? Yeah. So that's the first one. So Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. It It was foretold in the book of Micah, and it was fulfilled in the books of Luke and Matthew. In Isaiah chapter
2: 7, verse 14, we read, All right, then, the Lord himself will choose the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. And we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, I read up on this because I've heard there's a lot of controversy. Jewish scholars argue that the word translated virgin is a mistranslation and should be read young woman. However, the translation of words do need to be viewed within their cultural context. A lot of times, words change their usage over time. Language and the understanding of word meanings change according to cultural perception. And mm-hmm. at the time of Jesus birth, it was understood or implied that young unmarried women were virgins. Mm-hmm. Even the response of Joseph to the sudden and unexpected pregnancy shows that Mary must have been a virgin. Yeah. You could argue semantics or mm-hmm. the definition of a word, yeah. but if it doesn't match a cultural understanding then
1: you need to go back to understanding the language of the day. Yeah. Sorry. That was also the best translation that they came up with uh, going back to when the King James version of the Bible was put together at that time. That was the best English word they had for the equivalent of an unmarried maiden. Yeah. Virgin. In Luke
2: uh, chapter one, we read in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? This is very important. The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One will be born and will be called the son of God. Mm. So right there, Mary says, I haven't had sex. How can I have a child? So if you're going to call her a virgin in the language, yeah. and then she also in her response confirms that fact. It's very yeah. hard to argue the fact that she was just a young woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Matthew chapter one, verse 18 and 19, we read the birth of, the, of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother, Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy spirit. So, Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, did not want to disgrace her publicly and decided to divorce her secretly. Mm -hmm. Here again, Mary is referred to as being pregnant by the Holy Spirit prior to her marriage. marriage There was only one option in Joseph's mind, and that was that she had been fooling around. Yep. If we were to keep reading in Matthew, we read about the angel coming to Joseph and saying, hey, you know what? This is a God thing. Yeah. You know, go with it. (laughs) Be the father you were meant to be. (laughs) Again, culturally appropriate. Yeah, totally. She's, She's called a virgin. She
1: is a virgin. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and that brings us to um, if we move forward a little bit in uh, Jesus' life, we have uh, the temptation of Jesus by Satan. And actually, you know what? I think this is one that that I was hoping you would touch on because okay. you had thoughts about the whole temptation and how it relates to the prophecies. yeah, and it's a it's a little bit involved,
2: and hopefully I don't lose anybody, but in Psalm 91, verses 10 to 12, we read, No evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your dwelling. For he orders his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you with their hands and keep you from striking your foot on a stone. This is the prophecy that has to do with the temptation of Christ. Where yeah. Satan came down and, and attempted to to tempt him. I think is, yeah. is a good way of putting it. So the first thing I think about when we read this prophecy is that temptation that Jesus endured while he was in the wilderness. Even Satan in Luke chapter 4, verses 9 to 13, quotes this verse. And it's interesting that in reality, this is a two-part temptation based on two completely different prophecies. Mm -hmm. So the first prophecy, the very obvious one, is about testing God. Satan says, prove to yourself you are who you say you are. Is that what the process actually is saying? Is that what the prophecy is saying that we should test God? Hmm. We do know that once the temptation was over, angels came and tended to Jesus.
1: In a way, though, it sounds what you're saying is that did Satan know about the prophecies as well? Obviously, he knew the scriptures very well. You know, I think this is the part where he said, throw yourself off the, the, the top of the temple, and you know, the angels yes. will come and, and take care of you. If Jesus had said, Okay, fine, I'll show you I'm God or I'm the Son of God and done it, he would become sinful. He wouldn't be God because he would have given in to what Satan was suggesting he do, which is what Satan does. He makes a suggestion that Probably sounds like a good idea, but in, in reality, it's it's a veil for, for sin. And, yeah, it is very interesting that he uses one of those prophetic verses to try and get Jesus to fulfill the prophecy indirectly, if that makes yeah. sense. Well, I think we see something
2: here, too, in that when Satan is tempting Jesus, he's tempting him as though Jesus were a man. Yeah. He tries three times to attack three specific parts of the humanity of christ yeah which fail and after this point satan no longer goes after christ directly he goes after the periphery right he goes after the jewish high priests the pharisees sadducees the people the romans right Mm -hmm. that's where his attack is it comes into the uh apostles as well yeah. His direct attack on Jesus, we don't see that written anywhere. So he mm-hmm. clearly understood who Jesus was at that point, if there was any gray area leading into the temptation. Yeah. The second one, the second prophecy here is more obscure. It stems from a common Jewish expectation. And there were many Jews who expected that the Messiah would actually descend down out of heaven into the temple. Mm. That comes from a very loose understanding of. Malachi 3 verse 1, where he says, Behold, I'm going to send, I, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Hmm. The idea here, and you mentioned it earlier, of Jesus jumping off this parapet or this high area, yeah. was an idea of fulfilling this sudden. Appearing in the temple. Okay, oh, so okay. If, if a guy would have jumped off of a high building and he would have landed on the ground in front of you, you could say he suddenly appeared. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Momentarily. <laughs> yeah, he was here, then he was gone. It was very great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, though, here Satan was tempting Jesus to fulfill the expectations of the Jews, which mm-hmm. would have been contrary to the ministry and purpose of his life on earth. Yeah. Two temptations. One
1: obvious, one not so obvious. Yeah. And that's, again, when you talked before about that's the magnificence of God's word, this episode, uh, like all the rest of them, as we always say, could be a lot longer. And this is why, because there is so much in these tiny little passages that says so much about the life of Christ and about his ministry here on earth. Um, So, it is it's magnificent it really is yeah. magnificent when you look at it the next one we want to look at is the messiah will enter jerusalem triumphantly this one i want to do a little bit backwards okay i want to start by reading at matthew chapter 21 and then we'll go back to the old testament prophecy okay when they approached jerusalem and came to uh, Bethesh at mount of olives jesus said jesus sent two disciples telling them go into the village ahead of you At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send send them at once. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds went ahead of him. And those who were following shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, right? There's acknowledgement of his kingship. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That would be a reference to his priesthood. Mm -hmm. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in uproar saying, who is this? And here's the third one you mentioned. The crowd were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Yeah. So this is where I, that's why I wanted to read this backwards, because in this passage, you have reference to his kingship, his priesthood, and his profi, uh, his role as prophet. And yet, even though they were celebrating the triumphant, the entrance of Jesus into the, the city, they said that this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Nothing about Jesus being from Bethlehem, because most of them, most people didn't know he was from Bethlehem. Because he lived in Capernaum, but he was raised in Nazareth, right? Um, If you go backwards, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion, or people of Jerusalem. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, even a donkey's colt. Now, you could say, well, Jesus, you know, could have fulfilled that. But how would Jesus know where to send his disciples to find the donkeys? And how do we know the donkeys would be there? You know what I mean? Like, unless Jesus went ahead of them and set up ahead of time and said, hey, buddy, I'm going to send a couple of my disciples over here. And, you know, I got to fulfill this. And we, again, culturally, we, we look at these passages from almost like our cultural standpoint. Okay. But if we look at it from how the landscape, the geography, the culture was set up in those days, there is no way possible that Jesus could have any in any way, shape, or fashion gotten a message to somebody to set that up. Never mind rallying a crowd of people to celebrate who he was. Because remember, a few days later, they weren't crying Hosanna, they were crying crucify him. That's right. And just a, a,
2: an interesting thought on that Jesus said to the disciples go to this place, you're going to find a donkey, untie it and bring it to me and if anyone gives you any trouble just tell them you're getting it for me yeah. so yeah it's not like he phoned them up and said hey buddy I'm going to send a few friends out to pick up your donkey it wasn't like that at all yeah. they showed up at a random place untied a donkey and when they were approached they just said it's for Jesus and whoever it was they talked to said no problem
1: take it yeah oh go ahead yeah right yeah oh i know you're bringing it back um and that's the other thing too is this was taking place during the passover time right mm, so yeah. jerusalem would have been absolutely full to capacity of people from all over the world so this would not have been like um this wouldn't have been like a, you know, a few people in the desert. It's not a Monty Python skit. This is, you're talking like thousands of people are going to Jerusalem from all the different areas. So there would have been a lot of people around. So for one guy to borrow one donkey would, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't even matter in the scheme of things. Cause there were so many thousands of people there, Yeah, you know, um, I want to look at, it's going to go on to uh, quickly to the next one, which is Jesus will be, uh, the Messiah will be betrayed by one of his followers. Um, and this is really, we all know this references to the one of the 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot.
2: Sure.
1: Psalm 41 says, even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And again, in Psalm 55, it is not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. It's not my foes who arrogantly insult me. I could have hidden from them. Instead, it's you, my equal my companion and close friend. This is something that people have a hard time getting their minds around too. Judas Iscariot, who was the one who betrayed Jesus was chosen by Jesus. He didn't just, you know, insert himself into the, the 12 disciples of the chosen 12. Those men were specifically chosen by Christ for a specific purpose. Um, these were the men that spent three of the most closest years with Jesus. They ate, they slept, they walked with him. I mean, they were a part of every part of his life. Yeah. Even the most intimate parts of his prayer life. So Judas, he was there too. When, when, when Jesus said, who do you think I am? And, and, and he said, Peter said, you are the Christ. Judas would have been there. Judas probably would have agreed. Here was a man who was one of Jesus's best friends and for 30 pieces of silver, he gave that friendship up. He betrayed it. Um, and if we go to Matthew chapter 26, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. Okay, While they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, surely it's not I, Lord. And he replied, the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written written about him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. born. Judas, his betrayer, replied, surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, Jesus told him. Now, the top part about the dipping the the, the bread has dipped his hand with me in the bowl. That has to do with the passing on of the bread, dipping the bread in the, the, the oil or the wine and, and eating it. So, and there we have that in Psalm 40, 41, you know, my closest friend, he who shared my bread. And the other thing too, is Judas was the guy, he was the treasurer of the group, right? We read that in scripture that Judas was responsible for the money. Um, when the lady wiped Jesus' feet, Anointed his feet with perfume and stuff, and Judas said, Man, this money could have gone to the poor, it could have been used for a better option. That was Judas's focus. He was the treasurer. Um, and Jesus also knew that Judas had been skimming a little bit off the top. So Judas wasn't like a, a good apple from the start, but yet he was chosen. So, yeah, again, the 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 comparison or the the links between the prophecies and Psalms and how things went down for Jesus and his betrayal are
2: yeah. Very Before you move to the next part, because I know you've got more to say here, it's interesting in the last week, there's two things that I've read. One of them being about what they call the Gospel of Judas, which is an, a non-canonical book that's often referred to, where it yeah. claims are- that It's quite interesting. I read it many years ago. Yeah, and the the claim here is made that Jesus and Judas actually got together to plan what is known as the betrayal. Yeah. Seems very odd, which is likely why it's not canonical. Uh, Another thing that I read was actually when I was reading the kids of their devotional at bedtime, this idea that Judas had in his mind that Jesus was supposed to come as this conqueror. That he was supposed to take over the Romans and free the Israelites. And as Mm -hmm. we got closer and closer to this time when Jesus was killed, Judas became um, dismayed that things weren't happening the way he thought they should happen. And so he thought, I'm just going to sort of kickstart it a little bit. I'm going to do something that's going to drive Jesus to that place that he should be. Yeah. Judas didn't understand really why Jesus
1: was there. His focus was was out of focus, as it were. Which wasn't much different when you think about it from the other disciples, because um, even though they'd been with him for three years, a few of them asked some really dumb questions. Like, Philip, you know, well, where are you going? <laughs> can you show us how to get there? Yeah. You know, um, even Peter and, and his discussions with Jesus in the end, and even after his resurrection, you can still tell that there's a little bit of not quite getting it yet, you know, Um, but other part of this, of of this chapter in Matthew chapter 26 is um, it says, then one of the 12, the man called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now let's go back a few hundred years to Zechariah again. In chapter eleven, where it says, "And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and do not forbear." So they weighed out for my price thirty pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, "Cast it unto the potter." A goodly price that I was prized of, uh, prized at them. And I will, and I took the thirty pieces of silver and I cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. They weighed out thirty pieces of silver. Again, there's an exact amount there and you cannot, I guess you could say that they would maybe try to come up with it, but for Judas to go to the chief priests and say, hey, give me some money and I'll and I'll give you Jesus, when the chief priests could have had him arrested at any time they wanted. They could have had the Romans arrest him at any time they wanted. In fact, they several times they tried to arrest Jesus when he was in the temple and he slipped away. Cool. And the reason for it being was that his time hadn't come. The prophecies had not yet been fulfilled. And there were still 30 pieces of silver that had to be negotiated for his for the price on his head. It's very specific. And there's no way anybody could have uh, uh, could have come up with that on their own. So one of the things that happens here in the in the New Testament is
2: Jesus comes into Jerusalem, triumphant, riding on a donkey, people screaming and yelling, how excited they are. How can you believe that in so little time, he is going to become rejected by those same people? Yeah. But we should have seen it coming, right? That's, I mean, <laughs> 2,000 years later, after having a chance to go over the, the scripture, we say, well, you know, in Isaiah 53, it says, who has believed our message? To whom will the Lord reveal his saving power? He was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with bitterest grief, We turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we did not care. Mm -hmm. In Matthew 27, Jesus is now before Pilate. He has been brought up on charges. He was turned over by his own people. You know, Uh, Mm -hmm. Judas gave him up. It says, at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas Mm. and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, What should I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They answered, Crucify him. Then he said, Why? What has he done wrong? And they kept shouting all the more, Crucify
1: him. Mm. and that's essentially them turning their backs on their own on their own person on their own their own rabbi their own teacher the person who they said was a prophet that was them turning their backs on him yeah yeah it's it's a fairly fairly clear uh, uh prophecy to be fulfilled yeah oh and can i make one more point um sure it's When you read these passages in, in any of the Gospels, it seems to happen very fast. A lot of people go, wow, that was really quick. <clears throat> the thing we have to remember is that this all took place in the early hours of Friday morning. And the Passover was was coming. The Sabbath was due to arrive at sundown on that Friday. They had to get this done. The Jews had to get this done before the preparation for the Sabbath or before the Sabbath began. They were in preparation. So that if people say, Well, it happened very quick. It had to. They needed to get this done before the Sabbath because they knew that if they let this linger over the weekend, that there was a greater chance of Jesus being released. And mm-hmm. and they used every single button in the Roman in the Roman book to push to get the Romans to do what they had to do. Yeah. People say, Well, it happened really fast. Well, you've got to remember it's not people are not in control here. This is God's plan. Yeah. Only God could make it happen that fast. You know, and two, if you read these chronologically, so don't read
2: this gospel and that gospel, but read the story chronologically, so mix all the gospels yeah. together. It's amazing how this actually happened. Mm-hmm. There's little pieces of story in Matthew and Luke and, and John and and, yeah. and all these little pieces, when you read them together, you're like, that's amazing. How did How that actually came to be, because you find out little nuggets, like how Pilate had a relationship with with Herod, and yeah. how the the Pharisees kind of knew people, and they could push and pull. Like, it's
1: amazing. Like you said, it happened within the span of less than a day. Yeah. And but, the, other, the other thing too. Sorry, if people are gonna make this up, why would anybody throw Pilate's wife in there? Yeah. Right. And the other thing, too, is how do they know what Pilate's wife said? Well, we know for a fact that some of Jesus' followers were members of the, the, Herod, the Herod household as well as Pilate's household. So there's a very, you know, very good chance that someone would have overheard something and related to the disciples, and they ended up in one of the accounts. And we do have a copy of a letter that Pilate wrote
2: to Rome in regards to the crucifixion of Jesus. Yeah. How
1: crazy is that? Yeah. So, <laughs> why, would he get, why would he get into the plot? It is no, yeah. no advantage to the Romans.
2: <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. So, so Jesus was tried and he was condemned. Isaiah wrote about this. In uh, Isaiah 53.8, it says, From prison to <laughs> trial, they led him away to his death. But who among the people realized that he was dying for the sins that he was suffering for their punishment? I was like, wow, that could be a New Testament verse right there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know,
2: Isaiah could have been writing one of the Gospels. In Mark 14, verses 60 to 64, we read this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Yeah. So then, you know, you've got that part in there, and yet there's another prophecy that has just been fulfilled. And we read that here in Psalm 3511, Mm -hmm. about the messiah being silent before his accusers accusers it says malicious witnesses testify against me they accuse me of things i don't even know
1: about (laughs) and that fits with the sorry that fits with the passage where um it talks about the 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 chief priests and bringing witnesses in that told lies about jesus that didn't even match what he had done yeah (laughs) you know and if the psalms account isn't
2: enough we have another one in Isaiah 53 Mm -hmm. 7 to 8 it says he was oppressed and treated harshly yet he never said a word he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep is silent before his shears he did not open his mouth from prison and trial they led him away to his death (laughs) you know the the passage in Mark and the other gospel accounts describe Jesus as silent before the Jews and the Romans here he is innocent right And he is being accused by the people of the city, the leaders of the city, the the religious portion of the city, yeah. the Roman government. He's being accused by all these people. The only two things that he says, because he saw it during the whole time, yeah. the only two things he says is back here. Uh, are you the Messiah, the yeah. Blessed One? He says, I am. Yeah. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. So he, very little is said, right? He's yeah. quiet. He's quiet through this whole thing. It's amazing. Uh, Luke 23, 8, verse 9 says this. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not
1: answer him. Yeah. And just uh, another point about that is Herod was not, he was the king of Israel or the king of, of but he wasn't actually the king. He was, he was a king put in there by the Romans. The Romans are the ones who gave him that kingship and, you know, messed around with that whole thing. Jesus knew that Herod was not the rightful king. And is it kind of interesting is that the wrong king is asking the rightful king, you know, questions. And here we have the rightful king not saying anything to the to the unrightful king or, you know, the person who shouldn't be king. It's kind of interesting. That's another thing about the dynamics and the culture uh, and the even the politics at the time, like reading scripture is definitely, you know, that's number one. But if you, want to, if you want to really dig a little bit deeper, you, you do have to look at the historical context, the political context, because things like the fact that the, the, um, the Herod dynasty was not actually a lineage dynasty. It was something that was set up by the Romans. Um, those type of things have a huge influence on how you actually read the New Testament. Yeah. The Messiah will be, will be smitten, or he'll be beat and spat upon. I'm going to go back to Micah chapter five, where it says, mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem and with a rod, they will strike the leader of Israel in the face. And again, in Isaiah, which is even before Micah, he says, I will give my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I do not hide from shame for they mock me and they spit in my face. Matthew chapter 26. When he says, when Jesus says, you know, I am, and you will see the son of God. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him and others slapped him and said, prophesied to as Messiah. Who was it that hit you? So here again, we have the, the outcome of the prophecy. They will strike the leader. They will spit in his face. They'll hit him in the face. And here we have in Matthew that they spat in his face and they beat him and they slapped him. Everything that Isaiah prophesied would happen, happened. Again, this is not something that humans could control on their own. This would, this would almost be like a movie script, you know, like if people say, well, it didn't really happen. And I don't want to keep going back to this, but that would take a lot for you to organize a whole, the whole Sanhedrin, the whole Pharisee, Pharisee communion, uh, community. Um, Let's all get together in the early hours of, of, of Friday morning. And we're going to, you know, we're going to beat this guy because we don't like them, uh, and because it will fulfill the prophecies. They didn't want the prophecies fulfilled. This is no. the thing. He told them he was the Messiah, and they said, no. Well, if this was a whole staged thing, and he was the Messiah, they wouldn't have done this to their Messiah. It just it doesn't make logical sense. So when people try and refute it, you have to think about it in a logical, reasonable manner. Would people go to this extent? People don't go to that extent these days. Never mind back then. Oh, here, another one we have, sorry, uh, the, math, the, the Messiah will be mocked and taunted. Psalm 22, everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, then let the Lord rescue him. That's in Psalm. Okay? That's the yeah. Psalm of David. Yeah. Let's, let's jump forward a few thousand years to Mark, chapter 15. Mark is one of the first Gospels It was written, I want to add. Yeah. Those who passed by were yelling insults at Jesus and shaking their heads, saying, ha, The one who said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him taunted him. I don't think that deserves any explanation. I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> it's, it's almost word for word, right? Yeah. And, uh, it's something else. And yeah, and so that's, that, that takes us up to the crucifixion. Yeah, there's a lot here about the crucifixion. The,
2: um, the way he was crucified... All the details of that, you could go into a, a doctor's explanation. We could spend an hour talking about that. We're just going to try and keep it short. Psalms 22, verse 14 to 16 says, My life is poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like sunbaked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. (laughs)
1: It's incredible. I really find it incredible.
2: In Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, Then I will pour, pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on all the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me, whom they have pierced, and mourn for him as their only son. Read any one of the Gospels. Yeah. Read about the account of Jesus being hung on the cross. About his being pierced by by the nails that went through his hand and his feet, mm-hmm. about the spear that weighed in his side, about all those things. Not only is it talked about in the in the Old Testament, it's described in the Old Testament. Yeah. But actually, it was the wrong way of discipline, for lack of a better term. The Jewish punish, punishment for blasphemy was actually stoning. Yep. It, wasn't, it wasn't crucifixion. No. So the Jews had him killed by the Romans. Mm-hmm. And they did it in a way that was completely un-Jewish. Yeah. This, it's, it's weird, right? And it's the, strange.
1: It is. And the fact that the Jewish people despise the Romans as well. Yeah. <laughs> and it just um, The one thing I was going to point out here is in, in Psalm 22, my life is poured out like water. Well, there's the account of the the soldier putting the spear into the side of Christ and blood and water flowing out, which we know um, is what happens after you die. Everything voids. And if you were to... Like, bodies sweat when their corpses sweat. Um, The bones are all out of joint. Well, I'm not getting into the crucifixion, the way of crucifixion, but yeah, everything would have been pulled out of joint to get him on that cross, to get him. And then once he was up the weight of his body would have dislocated a lot of the bones too. Um, he says that my strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. There's a part in the crucifixion where Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And they give him a sponge full of, of vinegar and, uh, and alcohol to quench his thirst. Yeah. My name is surrounded like a pack of dogs. We've talked about that. And then they pierce my hands and feet. Like you said, how could... If the, if the prophets were talking about the death of Messiah, why would they pick a form of death that hadn't even been invented yet? Yeah.
2: The prophesying on something that they had, they had no knowledge of. This, yeah. this idea of crucifixion, let's not kid ourselves. It was a cruel form of punishment.
1: Yeah.
2: The amount of time that it took you to die was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. and hanging there and basically suffocating and trying to push yourself up on your legs yeah. to get that breath in, even though your legs were in so much pain,
1: mm-hmm. and the
2: weight of your body hanging on your, your wrists or your hands with the nails through them, just a ridiculously cruel form of torture and punishment. Yeah. In order
1: to die that way, it would take days. Yeah, which is the whole you reason know? why the, the Romans had that in place. Their idea was to make people torture people as long as they could. Really, if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, then why didn't the Jews just stone him? Why didn't they
2: just follow their own laws? Yeah, take him outside the city, stone him. He, he was you already know? he was already in chains. He was already bound. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I think the point here is they weren't in control. No, you know God God was in control. This was His plan, right? This is the way He intended it to happen. They, as much as they felt like they were doing the right thing, they ha- had no control over what was happening.
1: No, and I think that's, again, that's something we're seeing time and time again as we go through these prophecies, is that there is no way that things could have happened the way that they happened if man was in control. If this was man's plan, there'd be yeah. so many falling apart, you know? How many of our plans don't work out well, you know? Right. The well-laid yeah. plans of mice and men. Yeah, um, And then so moving on with the crucifixion, Isaiah 53 says, um, I will give him the honors of one who is mighty and great, because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among those who were sinners. Now, again, for those people who claim that that the prophecies about Jesus could not possibly be divine, um, or that Jesus could have influenced them. Jesus was was crucified between, we know he was crucified between two thieves. There may have been more people crucified that day, we don't know. But we know that there was two criminals that he was crucified in between. Which fits, again, with the, the Isaiah prophecy that he was counted among those who were sinners. Luke chapter 22, 23 says... Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with them. And when they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And Matthew, again, reflects that same, uh, same uh, prophecy that two criminals were crucified with him, one on the left and one on the right. Yeah. Again, how could someone plan the fact that, you know, hey, guys... Um, when you guys crucify me, do you guys mind if you have a couple of uh, you know, real criminals on either side of me? Because, you know, <laughs> prophecy prophesied Isaiah says, I have to die like this. Again, it's not a Monty Python episode. This is not the life of Brian. This is <laughs> the life and death of Jesus Christ. Sure. And then another thing, he's on the cross. Psalm 22 says, they divide my clothes among themselves, and they throw dice for my garments. Well, throwing dice is a reference to gambling, to betting, or as the old days would say, casting lots, right? You know, uh, deciding who's going to get it by a game of chance. And, and so we have the, David in Psalm 22 saying, they're going to divide my clothes, and they're going to gamble for my garments. And then we have in Matthew 27, after they crucified him, they divided his clothes By casting lots or by gambling. And again, in Mark 15, they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Mm -hmm. And finally, on the cross, Numbers chapter 9. So we're going even way back to that boring book of Numbers I spoke about earlier. Um, Numbers actually says they must not leave any of the lamb, we're talking about the Passover lamb, until the next morning. They must not break any of its bones. They must follow all the normal regulations concerning the Passover. And then in Psalm 34, it says, he keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. Jesus is often referred to as the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was the lamb that was uh, slain and blood was put on the door frames of the Israelites' homes so that the angel of death would pass over and not take the firstborn. And within Christianity, we know that Jesus... Or the Passover lamb was like a foreshadowing. It was like a, an example of what Jesus would do. Yeah. And so, therefore, you know, don't leave any of the lamb till the next morning. Well, they had to get this done before the Sabbath, and none of the bones were broken. Let's have a look at what John says. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the crosses on Sabbath. So, not just Jesus' body, all the bodies, right? For Sabbath was a special day, or that Sabbath was a special day because it was Passover. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who they crucified with Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once water and blood came out. Uh, And again, when you die, there's a separation between your fluids, so water and blood. For these things to happen, so that scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And also the other scripture that says they will look at the one they have pierced. So here we again we have another fulfillment of the prophecy where it's you know, none of his bones will be broken, and none of his bones were broken. Out of all those people that died that day, Christ was the only one who didn't have his legs broken. You know, and when
2: we talk about crucifixion. The fact that Jesus' bones were not broken is the weird part. Because normally in crucifixion, they would have let them hang there for a day, maybe two days. Yeah. And if they weren't dying fast enough, they would break their bones in order to bring the death in quicker. Yeah. So if you were going to be crucified, not only were you going to have the nails driven through your hands and your feet, you also were going to have your Legs broken. That was going to happen. That was the normal. Yeah. In order for Jesus to die without his legs being broken, that was abnormal. That was counter to the the way things happened. That it wasn't weird. It wasn't strange for the the uh, guards or the the gentleman to be asked to go
1: out and break legs. No. That that's another reason why I think uh, Pilate was. It says in the scripture that Pilate was was like, "Oh, he's dead already." Yeah. You know, because that's, they said, it's highly unusual. Again, that's another example of Christ or Jesus having control, or God having control of the situation, and not man. Here's
2: something else that's very similar. They're dying as a sin offering. Yeah. Not only the the, um, Passover lamb being given in order to give uh, protection for this angel of death coming. Yeah. But... Jesus dying as this offering for sin, there's a, this symbiotic relationship between these two stories. Yeah. In Isaiah 53, uh, verses 5 to 6, then verses 8 and 12, basically it says here, he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped that we were healed. All of us have strayed wailing sheep. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and the sins of all of us. From prison and trial, they led him away to his death. But who among the people realized that he was dying for their sins, (laughs) that he was suffering for their punishment? I will give him the honors of one who is mighty and great because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among those who were sinners. He bore the sins of many to intercede for sinners. Mm -hmm. And then if we continue in Isaiah 53, 10-11, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and fill him with grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have a multitude of children, many heirs. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he'll be satisfied. And because of what he has experienced, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, and he will bear all their sins. The New Testament talks about When Jesus died, this cry, you know, lama sabathani? why God, why have you forsaken me? This incredible passion of Christ. Why did he come? Why did he die? And this idea of God the Father turning his back on Jesus because he became this sin offering. He took all the sin onto himself. Yeah. because he had to die right he had to become the offering this i mean you know, the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin yeah yeah and and we could bring up how many verses in the new testament to, to support this but this idea this prophecy of him being a sin offering yeah. is unbelievable this this is the gospel you know this is what we are being told when we read
1: about the life of Jesus yeah about why he came and again, that's why verses like John 3, 16, you know, for God so yeah. loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, okay. mm-hmm. and, you know, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting lasting life. I mean, and again, that one I just quoted a few minutes ago, you know, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Um, yeah. The Jews would know that too. <laughs> this Ooh. is the other thing. They wouldn't know that. And yeah. yeah, it is, it's the gospel message through and through. And that's, that's the beauty. Yeah. yeah. Um, last couple here that we're going to do <laughs> before we finish. Uh, the Messiah will be buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53, and that's, Isaiah 53 tends to be the, the passage that most people go to. Yeah. Um, he had done no wrong, and he had never deceived anybody. Even Pilate said that. I can find no fault in this man. He's done nothing wrong. Why should I kill him? You know. Um, but he was buried like a criminal, and he was put in a rich man's grave. Okay, again, this would be very, very difficult for Jesus to uh, organize. Okay, after I'm dead, I want you to take me off the cross, and I want you to bury me in this specific tomb, okay? Like, really, he was dead. I mean, how many people would be like, well, he's dead. I guess we don't have to really fulfill the rest of the prophecies now. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, unless sure. unless people believe that he was the Messiah and that he would rise on the third day but we even see that at the resurrection people still didn't believe that he was alive people didn't believe he was he was raised from the dead in fact the romans and the jewish people tried to hide it because they didn't want to believe it you know Um, anyway so uh, he was put in a rich man's grave when it was evening a rich man from arimathea named joseph came uh, he himself was also a disciple of Jesus. He was also a, a member of the Sanhedrin, I believe it was, or he was a Pharisee. Um, and so he was a secret disciple of Jesus, kind of like Nicodemus. Uh, and Nicodemus and him probably would have known each other. He approached Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen, and placed it in a new tomb, his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. And he left after rolling the great stone against the entrance. Here we have Jesus buried in the tomb of a rich man and buried like a criminal in the sense that he was buried like everybody else, right? Every other sinner, you get buried, right? And then the Messiah will be raised from the dead. For you will not leave my soul among the dead. This is Psalm chapter 16, Uh, again, a Psalm of David. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your godly one to rot in the grave. And Psalm 30 and 3, you brought me up from the grave, O Lord. You kept me from falling into the, de- into the pit of death. And here we have, going forward again a few thousand years, we have Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Because they wouldn't have had time to have prepared the body properly before the Sabbath came, so the normal process of embalming and preparing the, the body for death so that it wouldn't smell, that's what all the spices were for, was to cover up the smell of the death, um, That wouldn't have, they wouldn't have the time to do that. So that's why they went back on the Sunday morning to, to do that. Um, and when they looked up, they noticed the very large stone had been rolled away. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. And he said, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Look, see the place where they put him? Go and tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there just as he told you. We know that after that day, Jesus appeared to the disciples multiple times. In fact, I think there was like over 500 appearances in in, in the time period that he was um, before his ascension. There was lots of evidence that Jesus had risen from the dead. And even the the Romans and the Jews, we know from history that they tried to hide it, you know, and they tried to get rid of any evidence of it and they figured it would just die out. I mean, I I believe if I we go back to one of the discussions that the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees had was that, When they were talking about Jesus, um, I think it was Gamaliel who actually taught Paul. He's the one that stood up and said, look, you remember this guy? Remember how popular he was? And then he got killed by the Romans and everything disappeared. What about this guy? Remember that guy? He was like a leader, a real zealot. And where are they now? He said, if you push this too far, you're going to make this man a martyr. If you let it go, it'll fizzle out on its own. If he's just a man, it will die. But if he really is the son of God, you won't be able to kill this. You know, and that was, that was one of the head Pharisees yeah. that said that. So yeah. we see time and time again that prophecies that were made in the Old Testament were fulfilled by Christ. Prophecies that could not possibly have been fulfilled by any man under any circumstances with any amount of planning. Even the best movies, which are scripted and which are acted out in a certain way, aren't perfect. There's always problems. There's always, you're always having to innovate and, and correct things. We don't see that anywhere. There is no correction to any of the prophecies. They are 100% accurate about Jesus Christ, and that is mind-blowing.
2: We could go on naming the 300-plus prophecies in every instance where they're fulfilled. There just isn't enough time. Even the ones that we've done, we have pushed the envelope on time. we even extended our recording time for this. And we've focused more on the prophecies that have to do with the life of Jesus, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, not so much on what would be considered the Christmas story. That in and of itself, with the amount of prophecies is phenomenal. But it's interesting just to put that exclamation point on the fact that these prophecies happened yeah, and in some instances in more than one place mm-hmm. and then they were fulfilled perfectly to the letter.
1: Yeah,
2: It's hard, hard to argue with that. The best way that I can think of ending this episode is this quote from the late Ravi Zacharias. It is the gospel, the story of Christ's advent, teaching, death and resurrection that provides the logical
1: end and only lasting hope. Mm. Absolutely. And um, I just wanted to say, I'm going to put it up on the, on the Facebook page, but there's a really excellent book uh, that was written by a guy called Lee Strobel, who was a a journalist and he wrote a book called the case for Christ. And it's actually almost like a biographical story, but really quickly, his wife became a Christian um, started going to church and Lee, Lee Strobel was uh, for all intents and purposes, he was an atheist. He had nothing no no reason to be interested in God at all. And he actually set out to to prove his wife was wrong and to prove that the church that she went to was wrong. And the book is really excellent, called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And if you don't like reading books, there's a movie. And I can tell you the movie is really good too. Um it's been yeah. pretty close to the book. So and you know, and Lee Strobel's written other books too, like The Case for the Crucifixion. Uh, the case for the gospels. There's different books he's written from a journalistic point of view. It has been an absolutely fascinating study looking at the the different prophecies. Yeah. For sure. Anyway. Well on that note, let's
2: um let's pray and uh and we'll give this year to God and and put next year into his hands as well.
1: Yeah. And hopefully twenty twenty one will be a better year for everybody certainly all right father god
2: your your life here on earth the the coming to earth of jesus the reason why he came his miraculous conception his life his death his resurrection was not a chance thing it was part of your plan It was what you had put in place at the beginning of time. It was your intention right from the beginning. So hard to understand sometimes why that had to come to be. Certainly not something that any of us would have chosen in our lives to uh, to take on the burden of the sin of all mankind. In this season, this, uh, Christmas season, this end-of-the-year season, where we think about a child coming, there's a lot of joy, there's a lot of hope. In the death of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is our hope, it is our belief, it is our faith towards the future that keeps us going. The, uh, The promise of eternity with you in heaven is, is phenomenal. To spend all of eternity with you in your presence, there's nothing more that I could think of that I could see that would be better. We pray that um, as we go into the new year, the things that we have learned in the past 12 months would stay with us. The trials that we have endured would be come to a point where we would understand why why this has happened. And we pray that you would bless 2021. Bless our lives. Open our eyes to see the thing that you would have us see. And bring those people into our lives that need to hear about the hope that is in us. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
1: And with that... um. I wanted to say thank you to everybody who has been listening to us over the last year, um, who shared these episodes and, you know, given feedback on them really appreciate the feedback that we get from people. Um, and very thankful that the Lord has allowed us to do this. Um, it hasn't been an easy, uh, an easy thing for us to do. Um, we, you know, it takes a lot of time to put a podcast together and Wendell and I both have, you know, like everybody else, we've got very busy lives and we've got very strange lives because of the, the, the recent pandemic. Coming into the new year, there's going to be a few changes, though. Yes. We write the a new theme
2: song. A new theme song. The theme tune. Yeah, something a little bit less guitar, sort of garage band sounding.
1: <laughs> I mean, it doesn't sound like you and I jamming. <laughs> because that's what it was. What it was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and hopefully we'll have more
2: microcasts. Yeah, put some folks into that. Maybe some guests. Maybe some guests. Yes, absolutely. talking about we'll possibly bring some guests in. Uh, we have already set up all the podcasts for next year. Yes, we have. We've already decided where we're going and where we're heading. That's exciting. It is
1: good to, to know where you're going <laughs> instead of hammering it out one month at a time. One month at a time, yeah. yeah. And we are going to have some guests. Um, I know of one already who's agreed, so we're kind of excited about that. I'm excited because <laughs> I want to see Wendell and this and this guest uh, have a good conversation. <laughs> It'll be interesting, I'll tell you. I'll be sitting and listening. All right. Have a great year, end of year, everybody. Um, happy new year to everybody.
0: Happy New Year. Hey, thank you for joining us. Don't forget to visit our Facebook, Patreon, and YouTube sites. We're always happy to visit and answer questions. Our Facebook page has discussions, articles, and links to the topics we discuss monthly. Keep us in your prayers as we prepare our podcast every month.